0: In this episode, we speak to Stéphane Derink, a member of the task force who worked closely with Michel Barnier. Stéphane's book offers intriguing insights into the EU's approach to the negotiations across its various stages and to what was at stake on many of the issues in the negotiations, from mobility to the communication satellite programme Galileo, from citizens to the Irish border, The book explores the different narratives in the UK and the EU during the negotiations. The EU is a legal and political entity and its tactics and strategy. It offers a critical and often surprised perspective on the UK's positioning from the opening of the negotiations and reflects on four precepts on the UK side that were important in leading to the outcome. Stefan speaks to us in a strictly personal capacity. Inside the deal, how the EU got Brexit done – is published by Agenda Publishing.
1: So the fact that the other party, the UK, was contesting what were core demands on the EU side, in my view, was not a very productive way from the UK's perspective to negotiate. It showed flexibility on our side, and I don't think that flexibility has been sufficiently recognized uh, in the UK. Perhaps it's different now, because in a way there's a third solution, with Rishi Sunak and the Windsor deal, where there seems to be more recognition also that the EU is really going out of its way here to try to accommodate the UK as much as possible.
2: Great. So Stefan, um, thanks very much for being to speak to us today. Our first question is why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, I think there, there are different reasons. I first reason will be that, or first motivation will be that this was a unique case in the history of the European Union, a country deciding to leave. First time ever, and hopefully last time. So that in itself merits, I think, a, a book written from from the EU's perspective. And then the second reason is um more related to the fact that it's the UK leaving and and my feeling always throughout this process that the story in london on brexit was very different from the story in, in brussels or in paris or the hague or or other eu capitals and so i was struck by that by the rationale of why the eu acted in the way it did was was not always understood or well understood or deliberately misunderstood but something else so just misunderstood because people underestimated what brexit was or didn't really know exactly what eu membership entailed and i when i say people i mean media think tankers even or mps ministers of, of of the government and so that for me was also an important motivation to because of course the uk has a global influence because of the language and english and therefore the story of brexit could not just be the story as it was told in london i felt it also merited to be told for, from our perspective finally it was just um there was just a story there i think <laughs> uh illusions delusions uh, empty empty slogans uh, uh misunderstanding what, what in my view what sometimes what withdrawing from the from from the eu meant in terms of losing membership benefits then constructed in the eu as oh they're punishing us uh why are they not treating us fairly because we voted to leave while well, from our side it was basically the, the basic principle of membership mattered and you're going you're leaving so you're, you're losing the benefits of, of being a member you want get away from the obligations but then you you lose the benefits and the, the kind of the clash of narratives was for me an important motive to to, to write this book
2: I mean I I would I would say as as, as an observer somebody who had to comment um um over the, the whole period um there was certainly a, there was a certain solipsism about the UK debate um it was very introspective and um and certainly didn't really think about the EU as um an actual as having interests but I wondered, as um, you're you're an, you're an Anglophile, if I may if I may say so, and we we met um, quite a long time ago, um, uh, for full disclosure, um, as um, I was a student in your research um, office, from what I remember. Did any of this surprise you about the UK? We, because in a way, that the UK strategy was sort of predicated on an assumption that the UK would be very effective as a diplomat, diplomatic mm-hmm. power, as a negotiator, as a communicator. Well, first, the, the
1: solipsism you mentioned is not a monopoly of the UK. I mean, many national debates on the European Union we look at it from the national perspective and look at it from who's winning, who's losing in our national politics in terms of an EU issue. And therefore, a, a biased debate on the EU is kind of ingrained almost in the structure of how, how it works, with the Council being so dominant and member state ministers being very important players. So, to some extent, you, you can find it in other countries too, but what I find that the, the vitriolic nature of the debate in, in the UK and the, the emotional nature also, which clouds then, in my view at least, the judgment on on the facts and on evidence and on policy and on on, on benefits of membership, quite probably quite unique from in all the. In, the national debates on the EU in, in, in what used to be the EU member states. And so that is something that is, has surprised me. I think you mentioned this also did you surprise that the UK was so kind of unprepared in a way? And that I think the political system was unprepared. The civil servants were prepared to engage in negotiations with us, but the politics was unprepared, clearly. Theresa May's government didn't have a shared vision on what leaving the EU meant, and neither did that government organize a debate. On what that meant what brexit meant basically before notifying us that the uk was leaving so that was quite surprising i think so this whole first period of no negotiation without notification as we called it which allowed us to prepare without engaging with the uk to prepare our mandate our, our negotiation principles with the member states that period in same period in the uk was dominated by internal political fights uh people going to the courts to ask privileges for the parliament to be respected, and so on and so on. And so that was a whole intra-UK debate, which in a way showed that the, the country was perhaps not ready to to say, what does Brexit actually mean? And you, you, you,
2: um, very early on, you, you set up these four fallacies that you think um, sort of capture some of the the problems on the UK side. And I wondered how soon you came to a sort of realization of those four fallacies.
1: Well, one was, was apparent early on, the fact that in the minds of some Brexiteers, Brussels or the EU would ask the UK to vote again and vote for remain, because the idea, this fa- fallacy that Brussels always asks member states to vote again if the outcome of the vote is not to its liking. That happened in the Irish-Danish referendum, but in a very different process of quid pro quo, discussions with Dublin, Copenhagen, what is it that you want, what is it that your public opinion want. This was a binary choice in or out, which we never, never doubted that, that this was a choice for out and that we had to negotiate an orderly exit. The idea that the UK needed to confront us came up early on. That was, from me, a second fallacy that you get a better result from the negotiation by engaging in confrontation with Brussels. I remember January 17, Theresa May's Lancaster House speech. No deal is better than a bad deal. If you don't give us a good deal on trade, we'll compete with you, outcompete you, veil threats on withholding security cooperation. All of that galvanized the unity of, of the EU, which was... Which was there, but still, in it's making also to some extent. So those two fallacies were there early on. The idea that such confrontation was productive in terms of creating a better outcome for the UK, again, another fallacy, was still there in 2020. I think with Johnson and Frost, that that, that surprised me. The fact that the EU always budgets the last minute was there early on again in 2017 when we were discussing the Brexit bill as it was called, the financial settlement, as we called it, where some voices in the UK said, let's leave this the last minute, so we then we get a better deal. Um, all of these fallacies were were there early on and informed the UK, I think, in terms of its politics and its in its negotiation approach, at least at political level.
2: I mean one of the things that might have been that must have been challenging and something that does come across in your book is how you're you're receiving you know ministers from the same government but singing sort of slightly different tunes at different points in the negotiations. Do you, do you think there was no learning on the UK side? You're very kind to say slightly different tunes because there were really sometimes contrasting
1: tunes between soft and hard Brexits, and, and, and even publicly, as I write in the book, in February 18, there were four or five speeches of different government ministers of Theresa May's government, including Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, David Davis, Michael Gove, Theresa May herself, And these speeches contradicted each other in terms of the 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 future relationship that was still to be negotiated at that time so uh well we we listened to all that political noise of course at the same time our focus was on those people who came to us to negotiate on behalf of the uk government so david davis or or Theresa may's negotiation team Uh, and that was the focus and we listened to those people and interacted with with them basically with the official negotiators to see if we could make progress and find common ground. But of course, we were aware of all that political volatility. And while some people in the UK said, oh, they must be opening the champagne there in Brussels. It's just a political mess on our side. None of that was true because we felt this was more like a, a recipe for, for, for disaster in a way in terms of the negotiations, because you want to negotiate with a partner who knows what, what it wants rather than with a partner that tears itself apart over over what it exactly wants from, from Brussels in terms of the new relationship. So that wasn't good news for us, all that political mayhem in in the UK and, and the divisions in Theresa May's government, unlike what some people on on the UK side were, were saying.
3: Yeah, it, it comes across quite a lot in the book, the the fact that yeah, you know, the the approach to the negotiations was uh conceived as horse trading sometimes, uh from some of the mm. UK side. Whereas for the EU, as you say, more of a an existential issue, is it?
1: An existential issue? it could have become an existential issue. And that was certainly part of why that unity was so strong in the very beginning. Uh, There were fears of contagion of Brexit to other countries where Eurosceptic forces were were very strong and where elections were coming up. Uh, For sure that that ebbed away after a while, I think, when people were more reassured and more confident on the EU side and, and gained also
2: in confidence because of the unity. And how difficult then was it to be sure that what you were um, the, the position being set up by the, the chief negotiator was actually the position of a government?
1: The question puzzles me a bit in the sense that if somebody comes to negotiate officially with us on behalf of the UK government, then, then we take that position, of course, as, as the UK's government negotiation position and try to work with that. and try to map where we have areas of agreement and disagreement, convergence and divergence, and see if we can can find can find a way through Fully, of course, respecting our core principles of the integrity of the single market, the indivisibility of the four freedoms, in terms of the trade discussions and also membership benefits, in terms of security, the cooperation, and and those discussions. And so, while we were aware of the fact that the positions we were listening to were sometimes were, were contested in in Westminster in Parliament, that was not something we could work with. I mean, we of course we we met. People from the labor side as well, or people from from Scotland or Wales, political parties in Northern Ireland who had different views, and we listened to them. We listened to Jeremy Corbyn, to Nicola Sturgeon at the time, and we were aware of all the different sensitivities and, and the contrasting views, but that's not something we had to work with as negotiators. As negotiators, we had to focus on what Theresa May and her team were telling us, and her ministerial negotiators, so David Davis first, and Dominic Raab, and Steve Barclay.
2: What must have been curious to you, and you sort of alluded to this at several points, is the, in a way, the UK trying to. find your own strategy or to try to tell you that certain elements of your strategy chosen and selected were not fair, I suppose, is, is yeah. the way of putting it. And I'm thinking there about the indivisibility of the four freedoms. I'm also thinking about the moment when the UK side said, but look, you know, this this draft agreement that we have basically puts together um, things that you've given to other third countries in the past. How could you respond to those things?
1: It was quite bizarre in a way that um, if you negotiate with, with another party, of course, you Your task is to listen to the other party and find something that the other party values in terms of its core demands. And for us, it was very clear from the summer of 16 onwards that the four freedoms would be indivisible. It's what Hollande and Merkel told Theresa May over that summer in her first weeks in office. Boris Johnson, David Frost, much later in 2020, it was very clear from us from the start that no level playing field guarantees meant no trade deal, whereas... Johnson and Frost were telling us we just want a minimal trade deal so let's forget about these level playing field obligations you're you're asking us. So the fact that the other party the UK was contesting what were core demands on the EU side in my view was not a very productive way from the UK's perspective to negotiate because it means you're contesting core demands rather from the other party rather than trying to work with them. Under the illusion, perhaps, that these core demands would then disappear under the pressure of, of, of some kind of negotiation approach. That was certainly very visible with Boris Johnson and and, and David Frost in 2020 when they refused to engage on level playing field for a long time. Then they came back on the Northern Irish Protocol by violating the agreed provisions or by announcing they would violate agreed provisions just to put pressure on us in terms of the future relationship negotiations and and to to get rid of the level playing field to some extent or of
2: the level playing field obligations in the way we we were asking them. If we can um, talk about the EU side, the EU strategy a bit, we know know about the task force and transparency, the special system of governance that was created to manage relations between the the institutions. But you, you emphasize communications a lot, communication strategy. And I wondered if you could say a bit about about that how did that come about, how is the strategy defined and sustained? Well, it's building but on the previous question in
1: terms of single market integrity and the visibility of the four freedoms, the level playing field, part of the communication strategy was emphasizing and repeating the importance of those of those principles. And that was partly also to support the unity of the Member States and to make sure we reminded ourselves of the core principles that the leaders had the EU leaders had, had agreed and set out and explain and re explain those. In speeches Barnier gave, in uh, in using plenary sessions in the European Parliament to, to reaffirm a number of things, in sharing communication material with national diplomats and with members of the European Parliament. Also, in anticipating certain UK requests or UK decisions around checkers, for instance, uh, July 18, the, Theresa May's plan for the future, kind of we simplify a single market for goods uh, and maintain that without free movement of people. Um, all of that we anticipated, basically, and in support of the unity. And in French, you had an expression with Bani as well, it should be la parole rare, so it should be not very frequent. But when it happened, it had to be forceful and, and, and rightly timed. And it often was, Part sometimes with sheer coincidence, as I write in the book, mm. because of events happening and things had been planned and then people regarded it as a masters of communication while everything in terms of timing was rather coincidental and partly due to just some contingent events, but partly it was also planned. And so... I think that the core of it was what you referred to in your question, also the transparency, that you would publish positions on online that everybody could download them and, and look at them online. Or, and that was, again, to sustain the unity of the 27 as well, to make sure that all national governments would have the information at the same time and to avoid any manipulation of information within the EU system to privilege a certain government or a, or a political group or something. Now, the other side of the communication coin was then the communication in the UK, which was mainly my responsibility to engage in public debates or to engage in Chatham House or off-the-record conversations with opinion leaders in the media, uh, political opinion leaders, think tanks, and academic experts who are visible and and, and present in the UK media national debates. To explain the rationale of the EU, which I always thought was misunderstood. And what struck me the most in that was that, coming back to the question we had earlier about this national lens of on, on how people look at the EU, is that when I repeated something which was, for Brussels people, old news or or very well known, many people in London or in Westminster were surprised to hear, and it became shock news and front pages of certain newspapers sometimes even though i only repeated what Barnier had said in the plenary of the parliament six weeks earlier or something and and so so that showed a bit this discrepancy between the between the two debates the, the, the british debate and, and and the debate here in brussels
3: can, can i follow up on something here you, you mentioned the headlines in in the british press i mean throughout the book it comes across quite strongly that um not only you, your team were reading uh, what was coming out uh, in, in UK press, but also in the member states too. And, and how did you manage that, reacting, responding to, to UK headlines? And to what extent, yeah, was that something that uh, you paid attention to with the member states too?
1: Some of it influenced the negotiations, but most of it did not. When it did, it was more about the citizens' rights and stories in newspapers about the Windrush scandal at the time, which was, of course, not about EU nationals, but then also it spilled over into uh, decisions by the Home Office to to instruct certain people to leave the country, to say, you know, your right to stay has has ended here. Did that influence the negotiations in the sense that member states would then come to us and say, what's happening there? Are the rights of our nationals guaranteed? Can can we trust what's happening there with terms of citizens' rights? But if you had more the, the headline news about accusing Brussels of being intransigent or or not imaginative or the theologians of the EU rulebook and and all those kind of things never never really made a difference in terms of negotiations. Because we followed it to understand British politics and to also to to engage in our own scenario planning and what could happen and this and that in terms of perhaps unpredictable events in British politics. By the way, and I don't think that's in the book, David Davis, in one of his first conversations with Barnier, said, well, you can just ignore the British press, Michel. Don't, don't worry too much about what's happening there. Well, of course, he himself would then also brief the British press to make sure that <laughs> some of his points were well reflected in the British debate. So for us, it was also a source to understand the different views in Britain, basically, and through, through looking at uh, the British press.
2: I'm struck by mentioning the Home Office in particular because I remember um, speaking to somebody at the in the early stages of the negotiations, saying the Brits are offering this particular they're offering to process um, these applications very very quickly. And this person said to me, "But we've been watching the press. We under- we've just seen all of those reports on the Home Office and the inability to um, process all of these applications. How on earth can we imagine that we'll be able to do something a lot more sophisticated?"
1: Yeah, Theresa May's head of staff, chief of staff, was uh, Nick Timothy, was doing the rounds, but with that idea to say, even before we start negotiating, we can we can settle this issue of citizens' rights. But member states indeed saw that, and we saw that. and But well, nowhere we need really rock-solid enforcement guarantees on the right. Hence the later discussion and on the the Court of Justice and uh, post-Brexit in terms of particularly guaranteeing that citizens' rights, as agreed in the withdrawal agreement, will be properly and applied and and enforced in the UK.
2: There was just a, a connection between um, your discussion in in the book of coming um, to your position paper. I think it was on citizens' rights, and it was a very interesting discussion of how. Member states sort of fed into this because if you if you didn't know if you were looking from the outside it looks like it's a commission paper um it looks like the commission or the task force at least this is tabling this paper but but you tell a story of how this quite there was a very elaborate consultation even with the member states was that the model for all of the the elements of the negotiation would you say
1: yes I mean we we always publish these position papers in two steps we first published it as a paper from us to the member states. Or an informal discussion, formally speaking, then, <laughs> because it's the Commission that negotiates, and therefore the Commission tables these papers formally. But we wanted to see what Member States thought about it in terms of their sensitivities, if that's what adequately reflected, what they what they wanted, on the financial settlement, on the citizens' rights, and so we then republished them once we had had that discussion with the Member States. And that was a model we we used throughout, and part of the strength, I would think, of the negotiating team and the Commission is that we, in doing so, in doing this in a very transparent manner as well, to pre-brief before we negotiated with the UK, to debrief, to, to, to make sure all the national concerns were, were reflected in what we were doing, that we then build up and, and sustain the trust of the member states and us as their negotiators. And that trust was a crucial factor for us to, to be successful in these negotiations.
2: I was really struck by um, something that you, you say in the book about, I think it was a Prime Minister of the, of the Czech Republic reminding somebody in the team that particularly the countries of Central and Eastern Europe had felt a bit left out at the end of the renegotiated settlement. So I wondered if that had been a sort of object lesson for the Commission in, in thinking about how to strategize with respect to the negotiations.
1: There was that. There was also the the experience of the last years with trade negotiations and civil society contestations uh, uh, on what was happening because people rightly or wrongly said we're not sure what's happening in terms of a trade negotiation with a third country. So all of that informed a bit our thinking. But the main issue was, what was mentioned earlier, that this could become an existential challenge to the EU as such. And that therefore, we need a unique method also to keep the unity and that transparency will be helpful in that and to avoid that manipulation of information because you wouldn't want the prime minister of a country somewhere, let's say in Stockholm or, or Lisbon or whatever, to open the, the Financial Times or some other paper and discover something that is happening in the Brexit negotiations through manipulated leaks of information and so on. That, that, that was, I think, the main driving force for us, to have yeah. that transparency.
3: It, it's, um, knowing a little Brussels, that's a, a huge achievement, not to have at any point along the line, would you say, uh, uh, come across some problems with that unity? Any point where a couple of times in the book where there may have been off. sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the specific point where you briefed the European Parliament ahead of, of the member states.
1: Yeah, I think that you're, you're referring to the joint report in December yeah. 2017, where some MEPs came out of the Berlaymont, the headquarters of the Commission, where Juncker and Barnier worked, and, and they came out of a, a meeting where we pre-briefed, or where Juncker and Barnier pre-briefed them on what was in the draft joint report. I, th- I think it would have gone wrong in any case, that draft joint report, because the DOP may not have been fully aware of what had been discussed. Was our impression, at least? I, you would have to ask people in in the London system if that is right. But uh, certainly, the the DOP woke up rather or, or reacted rather late in the process on what uh, was foreseen that joint report, and then that led to a, a hectic week um, between Belfast and London, basically, and negotiations to to make sure the joint report went through. But that I think was not representative for the general practice where. Pannier went to, to the Brexit steering group, which was the MEP group, the members of European Parliament group, and briefed them. And by and large, that was always kept confidential and uh, the rules of confidentiality they were were respected, more or less. That, that was not a representative incident, if I put it like that. If we can move on
2: to the um, issues. Um... We haven't got time, obviously, to speak in detail about um, the three major areas that were discussed under the withdrawal agreement. But you do make the, the the important point, I think, that the EU reached two agreements or negotiated two withdrawal agreements effectively with the UK. And you are there referring to backstop and front stop. I wonder, how would you tell the story of how the Irish border was was resolved? Well, the story
1: was partly driven by a denial for a long time in, in... UK negotiators at leaving the single market and the customs union raised unique challenges to keep the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland open and to avoid customs checks and, and other types of checks there. And so we, we had to repeat that point and we kept a bit of ambiguity in the December 17 joint report in terms of maybe the future relationship could bring a solution, even though we kind of knew, well, if you're really leaving the single market and the customs union, we will need to find a solution which will be difficult. But, but we'll have to make it work. And so the UK then moved from denying that leaving the single market and the customs union would create problems and, and that, you know the magical thinking that the future relationship could kind of solve it to acknowledging that there was a, an issue to be solved there. And that's where Theresa May worked very hard with, our, with us, with Juncker and Barnier and the negotiators to wrest some concessions out of us in terms of a softer Brexit that was easy relatively easy for us to do. There were difficulties there, difficult discussions with member states who were quite reluctant at first to, to go down that route. But since we got very solid level playing field commitments and guarantees that such that would accompany such a soft Brexit, member states were okay with that. What was always, in my view, underestimated in the UK debate that followed, which was ah oh, They're trying to trap us in their orbit of regulations and customs is that it was a big concession on our side to outsource checks for the single market and the customs union to UK authorities. And therefore, it had to be framed by proper rules and regulations and enforcement mechanisms. So then came Boris Johnson. I think there we went backward immediately when he came into office by denying that the all island economy had to be protected by saying that there could be customs checks on the island itself after where we had been for since November 18 with Theresa May, that was quite of a shock in the beginning. Member states told us to wait and be patient and see if the UK would change its position, which it eventually did. Uh, Boris Johnson then signed up to indeed what you call the front stop or permanent system for Northern Ireland unless there is a consent vote that, a vote that, that basically rejects the application of the system four years down the line. So I think It showed flexibility on our side, and I don't think that flexibility has been sufficiently recognised in the UK debate. Perhaps it's different now, because in a way there's a third solution, with Rishi Sunak and the Windsor deal, where there seems to be more recognition also that the EU is really going out of its way here to try to accommodate the UK as much as possible, while maintaining our safeguards in terms of the single market integrity and and the protection of our customs union.
3: Could you tell us a bit about the story of Galileo and and why... You might think it's instructive. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> it's
1: a fascinating story with an anti-climax, I'm afraid, at, at the end. So it's not it's not a story with a happy ending, but it's uh, uh, in the book I describe how the UK's thinking, first of all, changed dramatically from Tony Blair's government, which said, Oh, this is we should we don't want Galileo first, or this is purely limited to civilian applications. That was Tony Blair Tony Blair's government line, and they thought they had secured that. But then 10 years later, the Ministry of Defense under Cameron said, oh, we would like to be part of the military applications also. And the, what is called the PRS, the Public Regulated Service, which is a for military applications, a highly encrypted, secured signal that can help geolocation for, for military purposes. And So the UK wanted to be part of that. Galileo came up already during the financial settlement discussions where the UK said, well, these, we paid for these satellites, so we co own them. That didn't fly because those are EU assets and therefore they're EU property. But we made a gentleman's agreement to say already in the financial settlement uh, issue, if you're going to participate in the future, then we will take into account your financial contribution from the past. So we kind of opened the door already to say, look, we can perhaps be flexible in terms of your, your future participation. And then came fast forward to April, May, June 2018, uh, six months later, very difficult discussions on that future relationship, but the UK fought tooth and nail to say we we want the same treatment as a member. And we said, no, but you can't have that, of course. You're no longer a member. Uh, we want access not just to use the PRS, the, the public regulated service, you also want access to the source codes and how that works, to have our industry be involved in developing that and further developing that. And from a security perspective, to to allow companies not based in your territory to, to, to do that is, is not an easy decision. It's not something we, we would consider. And also give access to the encryption and the high-tech stuff was was not something we could consider and member states would ever have considered. But we wanted to, to have the UK on board in terms of access to use the PRS. And at some point then, after long negotiations to say, okay, let's open the door to the future to such discussions, the instruction came from london that uh, london no longer wanted to be engaged in discussions on the cooperation for galileo it's quite remarkable after having listened to the uk in may june to say this is essential for our security for national security uh, we need the same access to have them four months later from the ministry of defense or the minister of defense to get the instruction like well no longer longer ask for cooperation It's quite an amazing U-turn, I thought, from from the UK's perspective. In 2020, our mandate actually said on the future with Johnson, let's offer again to give the UK access to the PRS, but uh, the UK was not interested. And member states, of course, also, once they realized there was no security partnership with the UK, Galileo was part of that, were also then no longer as adamant to try to construct something with the UK as, as they were in May, June 2018.
2: So that was a U-turn. Um, you, you use another metaphor to, to describe um, 2020 in the level playing field. Um, why was that a roller coaster?
1: Well, because David Frost denied that there was an issue, first of all, so but WTO would be sufficient. And he said, no, well, you're, we're such close competitors. We're going to give you zero tariff, zero quota access to, for trade in goods. We can't do that if there are distortions of competition in terms of stay date which can happen also in niche sectors, strategic investment, strategic research, and so on. And if you undercut us in terms of social environment standards or climate change policies, uh, which of course impose a cost on industrial production, it was clear for Barnier and the team from October 2016 already that for countries like the Netherlands or Denmark or uh, France, obviously Ireland also, there would be no trade deal without level playing field conditions. Otherwise, you have a competitor at your doorstep that can undercut you so easily. So, yes, there would be more competition between the UK and and the single market. That was clear, but it had to be framed and regulated uh, to avoid unhealthy competition or unfair competition. And Frost just said, no, we're not going to discuss that, basically. For us, WTO is sufficient. Then it led to complicated discussions on Non-regression clauses from existing social environmental standards and from existing carbon pricing issues um, where we kind of said, okay, we, without becoming too technical, we let's just accept the floor and then see what happens in the future. We need to find a system of equivalence or convergence going forward. Maybe we can do what we did with the Canadians. We, if we both um, increase our level of ambition of protection, we can click it in at a higher level. That was unacceptable because this Frost or others saw it as a impinging on UK sovereignty because I think they feared that the Labour government would indeed improve standards or boost standards, so to say, and that the subsequent Conservative government would not be able to lower them again without violating the, the trade and cooperation agreement with, with the EU. So I think there was some kind of, at least that's how I read the situation and how I explained it also partly in the book. But it was a roller coaster ride because it went back and forth and it, it needed the October 2020 European Council in the end to say to the UK, it's time for you to move. Stop threatening no deal and work with us constructively on, on a system that works for both of us. And then we got some more creative thinking and we gave some concessions also during that roller coaster ride without giving in on the essence in terms of state aid principles and rules, enforcement by UK courts, which is very important for us. Non regression on social and environment, and in terms of the future, then have remedies and sanctions and retaliation mechanisms in case um, one of the two parties would try to undercut the other with lower social or environmental standards.
3: You mentioned here uh, Frost and how central he was in, in that, that last year of negotiations. Coming back what, what was his uh, worn nerves, and, and do you think that inflicted lasting damage?
1: We kept saying well there, there will be no trade deal without level playing field and so the war of nerves was partly well i'm not going to give you anything on level playing fields and see if your unity cracks basically and on the same on fisheries i'm going to tell you that we there's no access to our waters uh, unless we negotiated uh, on a yearly basis uh, and no historical rights will be protected basically in terms of existing quotas which we then managed to turn into a gradual phasing in of a new system that, roughly speaking, sacrifices a quarter of what fishing rights that that the EU fishing fleet had uh, under under membership conditions. So the word of nerves was to try and not engage on these issues or go back and forth or do step forward two steps backwards or two steps forward and one and a half backwards. It could not crack because, as I say, in October 16, the first conversation is, Mark Rutte telling Michel Barnier, first conversation in his tour of capitals, Mark Rutte telling Michel Barnier, I need level playing field conditions and solid guarantees. Otherwise, there's no trade deal unless they accept the Norway model, which, which was probably uh, not realistic anyway. So we needed an FDA with this level playing field guarantee. So from my perspective, it would have been much more constructive to avoid the war of nerves and engage from the start. By acknowledging that there had to be level playing field conditions, there had to be something on fishery that satisfied the EU as well, because there was no chance that a head of state or a national prime minister would condone basically a loss of a total loss of fishing rights. That would be unexplicable for national governments in the EU for whom fisheries is important to say, oh well yes, I, I gave in on all our fishing rights. So that was it was a no-brainer in my view. This was a recipe for no deal. And so if you didn't want no deal, it was much better to engage early on on these issues.
2: So if we could just close with a few reflections, we've got a few questions which sort of invite you to think about all the years that have passed since 2016, or maybe even 2015, but also looking towards the future. And the first question I wanted to ask really is that many in the UK say, okay, we're in a new phase now, the Windsor Agreement is signed, the the Windsor Framework is signed, and... This relationship is a lot more relaxed and we can look forward and there's a kind of perception of low-hanging fruit on the, on the side of the uk and some of the, some of the things that people think could be re- relatively easily achieved are mobility for musicians and others what's what's your view on that well, well if you talk about going forward um
1: what i speak as to you as author of a book that finished in 21 so but in a personal capacity still talking on these issues i i would say going forward it's there are three issues that will shape and determine the, over the next years the, the relationship which just the withdrawal agreement, the trade and cooperation agreement, and then external shocks like the Russian war against Ukraine that leads to cooperation on sanctions and security issues and winter preparedness for energy and those kind of things that suddenly we realize it's it's in a, a mutual interest to discuss these things between the EU and the UK. Uh, your question on mobility is the answer lies in the trade and cooperation agreement. There's no way in that trade and cooperation agreement to to act on that. Perhaps they're part of the trade and cooperation agreement is national reservations, of course, and national visa regimes are part of the discussion. National work permits are part of this discussion. So there is perhaps some things that member states could do on that. But in terms of the EU UK and a trade and cooperation agreement, that is done and dusted basically. And uh, and it's not going to be reopened anytime soon in my view. And there's also no appetite, I think, on the UK side to reopen that rather the, the political imperative both from this government and then the opposition today seems to be to you not know, to discuss all that in, in, in at any great length and just to say well this is the, the agreement we have to live with and we have to make it work and that's also the position here the official position of commission and then and, and that's also what's happening in, in in practice is we need to try to exploit the full potential of TCA. so that's about horizon and university and research cooperation about dialogues on certain issues that also have a new importance after the Russian invasions, cybersecurity, energy, but not in a way that would change the fundamentals of what was agreed in 2020. There are a number of issues in the trade and cooperation agreement that still can be fleshed out. It says, well, we could have something on carbon pricing, we could have something on uh, energy, wholesale trading of electricity, there could be further steps there, and all that is already foreseen in the TCA. But on mobility, there is nothing extra foreseen at this stage.
2: No, the, re- the reason I ask about that is there are musicians and, and others. I mean, this is often called, this is often called the Elton John issue mm-hmm. or question. Um, but you know, the understanding is that this was something that the EU was prepared to grant during the, the negotiations. But the negotiations are again? finished,
1: yeah, during the negotiations. But then we wanted to discuss the mobility of students and trainees and uh and researchers, and uh, youth exchanges, and all and all, and all those things, uh, subject also to a principle that all EU nationals would be tra- created, treated equally, so non-discrimination of, of EU nationals, so whether you're Romanian, or Polish, or Danish, or, or Spanish, you get the same treatment uh, as a trainee, or student, or or whatever category we wanted to, to, to find more fluid mobility arrangements for, but the UK was not interested in that, and that closed the whole discussion on uh, on mobility arrangements, if the UK had engaged with us only, yes, let's create some special, more more generous conditions for entry and stay for the categories you, we, we I just mentioned. Perhaps you could have had a discussion on, on mode four under the WTO, so people coming here for business purposes or or on, on the issue referred to on musicians. I don't know, but perhaps there would have been a better arrangement. I It's hard to... It's a counterfactual it's hard to re- reproduce that but maybe but we never had a chance to to explore that possibility because the uk closed closed the door on all the mobility arrangements we wanted member states wanted because that's what they put in the mandate they gave so we are where we are and yeah and i believe also elton john gave his last concert a few weeks ago so
2: <laughs> the elton john uh, <laughs> yeah I, I, th- I think he was um you know campaigning on of health musicians
1: yes um, no no i recognize that and i, and I feel sorry for, for when, when you read such stories and uh, about musicians and often it's about customs arrangements as well for for the equipment or it's about logistics uh in terms of going on a tour so it's not just about the work permit for the individual musician it's about the whole operation as well which of course takes on a commercial dimension then and from the eu's perspective one solution is then to, you know, once you have the customs clearance for the equipment or is to use an EU-based company for the whole logistics of this. And it makes it, of course, much easier
2: to tour in the EU. And a question that is often asked in the UK, um, but I've heard it asked in Brussels too, is should the EU have acted differently? Um, should the EU have taken a more flexible approach? What do you, what do you think of that uh, question?
1: Basically, if you look at Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunari, now we kind of three different arrangements for Northern Ireland with three different prime ministers. So I think we were quite flexible in that sense, even though people in the UK still think we were not. I'm not sure, yeah, I can't think of anything during the 2020 negotiations where we should have acted differently because we needed level playing field and an honourable deal on fisheries. So as long as that was not on the table, there was no way we could engage in seriously trying to wrap up negotiations. With Theresa May, I think we, we made very clear that... There would be no f- single market for goods very early on and she still kept insisting that she was going to ask that and trying to break in the visibility of the four freedoms and so that was not something we could ever give we, we tried to instill in, in british government circles the idea that don't don't go to a space where we would have to say no and she still tried to do that to the point that some people would say well in the joint report we kind of said the future relationship may solve northern irish conundrum maybe we were there a bit too too optimistic in terms of keeping that what we thought back then was an illusion alive but at the same time at that point member states also said well maybe the uk will move to staying in the single market maybe they will move to wanting to be in a customs union so let's not close the doors so it'd be too easy now to say we should have been tougher on theresa may in december 17 to make sure we put the 2018 negotiations on a more productive and fruitful footing, people in the member states and in the commission also thought in December 17, maybe she will move to a, to a softer relationship, which she eventually did, in fact, without explaining it, unfortunately, to to the members of her government, perhaps, and to the, to the members of parliament, which are then taken by surprise what came out of those negotiations. And I say that because Rory Stewart said that on the rest is politics, and so it's something that I can corroborate with UK sources. He was a minister back then in in, in Theresa May's government. Mm. And so said, basically, I was surprised to find out what she had negotiated. Mm. If I remember correctly, I hope
2: I do. So there's a lot of um, praise for the the Barnier method in Brussels and across the national capitals. And I wondered if you saw any future for it, um, its application in other fields, but also whether you thought that it had already changed the way that member states and institutions interact. It
1: certainly was a very good practice for Brexit. And this symbiotic relationship, just to give you another example, we, we saw draft resolutions from the parliament before they were going into the parliament system, just to make sure we were all singing from the same hymn sheet, so to say. Uh, and the same happened with, uh, with member states. Of course, it's if you think about internal challenges in terms of EU discussions on things that divide member states, it's harder to see how such a method can be applied perhaps in terms of external challenges to things like a virus coming to us in a pandemic or or a threat from a third country. Uh, There, I think one could think of such a system because it was a very powerful system to have a a task force with all the expertise from the commission DGs departments in one place with the trust of the member states in that task force as as a negotiator and the trust of the European Parliament on top of it. With that transparency, it was a very powerful method in terms of us Uh, versus, you know, in terms of negotiating with the UK. But the precondition is that member states are united. And so, of course, the Commission can work to unite them. But here, they were naturally united as well, I think, and uh, because of the, the potential existential nature of that shock. On the one hand, I would want to say, yes, it's a brilliant method, which we should really try to copy elsewhere. On the other hand, the conditions may not be such that you can easily emulate it for other cases. And I And I haven't got my head fully around the tension between these two statements.
3: And certainly, the member states—no one was, uh, no one cheered the UK leaving. And it was everyone has repeated: member states, Commission, Council. How how sad an event it was to see see the UK leave the European Union. Um, Is there going forward any possibility of rejoining the UK?
1: It's very hard for me to answer that. I got that question every time I did the yeah. book presentation in London. I hardly get that question in other capitals, so to say. <laughs> so it's a very UK question. Again, it doesn't seem to me that the current prime minister and the current leader of the opposition have a big appetite to to discuss that question. For the foreseeable future, we, have, we will be working with the withdrawal agreement, the trade and the cooperation agreement, and then responses to external shocks that that will induce further cooperation. And hopefully step by step we will create a closer cooperation and rebuild that trust that is there now with the Windsor framework and also between between Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen and, and other EU leaders. And so I think you need to take this step by step where that where these steps will lead us, I think no one no one, no one can say at this point. We have nine countries that want to join. So the UK is not part of those. <laughs> and if the UK would like to be part of those, that's first and foremost and purely a UK decision and and it seems to me that the UK will need an in-depth national debate before it takes that step rather than taking a step that divides the country again as as we've seen during the referendum campaign and then afterwards.
2: Very well. So Stefan Derink, author of Inside the Deal, how the EU got Brexit done, thanks so much for joining us. Thank
1: Thank you. you.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Thank
1: you, it was a pleasure.
0: Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.